So I walked into the auditorium just a little bit late this morning, and my wife's not with me today. She's visiting her mother, so I thought, well, I'll just sit down front. I came down front, and there are signs that say singers in the very front row, and I was told I could sit anywhere I want today. I didn't want to sit there. Wherever you're sitting today, we're glad that you're here. Glad to see those of you who are here with us in person, as well as those of you who are online with us as well. Glad that we're together this morning. I heard a story about a young teenage girl who had just gotten her learner's permit, and she offered to drive her parents to church one Sunday morning, and she did. After a rather hair-raising trip to church, she comes squealing into the parking lot, the mom was sitting in the back seat, and she said, thank you. The girl said, Any, no problem, any time. The mom gets out and said, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to God. <laughs> As you can see, I've done it. I have taken a group of words and made a sermon series out of them. I wasn't sure I was going to do that, but lo and behold, here we are. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about some specific words that I think are important words. In fact, some words that, that I think could change your life if you allow them to. We looked at the word yes and the word no and the word wow. And today we are talking about the word thanks. And I think we would all agree that thanks is a good word. I think we can all agree that thanks is a really good word. It's an important word. It's one of the first words that we try to teach our children to say. Say thank you. Be sure and say thank you. Nobody's going to argue that thanks is a good word. It's good to be grateful. And yet, as much as we know how important and how encouraging it is to be grateful and thankful, the truth is we're not very good at it. We think we are, but we're really not very good at being grateful. And we're not that good at saying thanks. Not really to each other. Not really to God. Most people find it very difficult to sustain an attitude of gratitude. We'll do it every now and then, but you know, we're just, that's not exactly how people would define us. But Scripture is filled with examples where we are not just encouraged, we're actually commanded to be thankful. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this letter to a group of relatively new Christians who are just kind of beginning to learn what life in the kingdom is going to look like. And he offers them some rather mind-blowing insight as to what this kingdom life is going to be like. You're familiar with this verse. Paul says this, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our problem is, we are joyful sometimes, and we pray sometimes, and we are thankful in some situations, some circumstances, but Paul says, that's not good enough. You've got to do better than that. You've got to be joyful always. You have to pray continually. You need to be thankful in all situations. And then Paul tells us why. That is so important, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that word will, God's will for you, in the Greek, it's a verb that's understood. This is God's best offer for you. This is your best option. 
This is your best life according to God. And really, we have a couple options. I mean, we can choose the life that's defined by joy and prayer and thanksgiving. Or we can choose the life that's more defined by cynicism and selfishness and and ingratitude. You know, the former, that's God's will for us. That leads us to the life that God wants us to have. The latter, yeah, not so much. It's going to take us away from where God uh, wants us to be. So Paul's final words to this sort of struggling church could not be more applicable to us today. Because what Paul is telling them is, you need to say thanks. You need to be grateful. And it can change your life. Being grateful can actually change your life. And I know that for a lot of us, ingratitude and cynicism kind of is our default mode. It's just kind of easy to slip back into that. But if anybody on the face of the earth should be defined by being grateful, shouldn't it be us? If there's any group of people anywhere that's like, well, those are a thankful people, shouldn't it be followers of Jesus? You know, think about your day. Think about uh, yesterday. Um, although Saturday is not a good day. Think about Monday that's coming up. Yeah. If there was a scale somewhere, a balancing scale, and every time you said thanks, a weight was put on one end of the scale. And every time you complained, a weight was put on the other end of the scale. At the end of a Monday, what would that scale look like? How would that balance look? Am I doing more complaining? Or am I doing more saying thanks? And of course we all say, well, the thanks side, that would be pegged. Because I'm not a complaining person. (laughs) I think sometimes we complain a lot more than we really want to admit we do. No, we complain when we don't have cell phone service, right? Even though the idea of having something in my pocket that I can take out and talk to and even look at anybody that I know anywhere in the world that also gives me immediate access to unlimited information that also can check my heart rate, can tell me where my wife is all the time, can uh, help me you know, hang a picture straight, I can take pictures, I can take movies, uh, tells me the time and the weather anywhere in the world. That should kind of blow my mind, shouldn't it? But instead, I'm like, what is wrong with this stupid thing? Or we complain when our plane is delayed for 30 minutes. Even though we can now travel from coast to coast in about three and a half hours, a trip that used to take 10 years, and you ended up with people you didn't even start with. We just complain about everything. And we don't even think of it as being complaining. But it sort of is our default mode. But when you look at the life of Jesus, it's really interesting. Because Jesus is able to say thank you in some of the most unusual and some of the most unlikely moments in all of history. Uh, For instance, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is with his closest friends. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows that every one of the guys in that room are going to scatter and abandon him. He knows that in a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. 
But look what Luke records of Jesus saying that night. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. The night before the worst day in human history, Jesus stops and says, Thank you, Father. Another time his friend Lazarus has just died. We're told by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus has missed the funeral, but he shows up at the graveside. And the mourners are there, and they are crying. The family is there. They're crying. Jesus is there. He's crying. It's a very emotional scene. It's a very intense scene. And Jesus stops to pray to the Father, which is not surprising. But notice the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In the wake of a very painful loss, Jesus says, thanks. And all through the Gospels, you see Jesus saying thanks in some really stressful times and some really um, unlikely situations. This morning, I want to focus on one particular story that you're going to know pretty well. It's in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus' disciples are just starting to try to better understand what this life in the kingdom is really going to look like. And Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are with him. He has gone up to a hillside. Uh, His popularity is on the rise at this point. And huge crowds are coming to him. And John says this in John chapter 6. Like I said, you're going to be familiar with the story, but I want to... I want to approach it from a little bit different angle. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would ask Philip this question. We know that Jesus is actually kind of testing him a little bit. But it would make sense for Jesus to ask Philip this question because although John doesn't tell us, Luke's account tells us that this area was around Bethsaida. Philip just happened to be from Bethsaida. If anybody would know, where can we get food for this group of people, it would have been Philip, right? It made perfect sense that Jesus asked Philip. If I want to know where the best burger is in Brandon, I'm going to ask Keith and Kelly. If I want to know where the best steak is in Plant City, I'm going to ask Reb and Cheryl. If I want to know where the best Chinese food is in Dover, I'm out of luck. There's no Chinese food in Dover. Uh, But Jesus asks Philip this question. Where can we buy bread for these people? And notice Philip immediately goes to the practical. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not be enough, but not buy enough bread for each to have a bite. Philip immediately goes to where or what they lack. He immediately goes to, this is what we don't have. And this is what we can't do. We don't have the necessary resources to feed this many people. We can't afford to feed these people. And he's right, by the way. In this group that Jesus is traveling with, they don't don't have any money. Now, they're being supported by some women, but they don't have a lot of money. Philip lived in a world that, that knew poverty. These people that Jesus was attracting, they were not the rich and famous. They were just the opposite. Scarcity was not just some concept to these people. It's the world that they lived in. In Roman culture, 
the, the poor majority depended on the wealthy, the poor majority depended on the wealthy minority in order for survival. And the poor depended on the wealthy, but even though you would think there would be you know, a lot of gratitude there, uh, it was really kind of a misled notion of gratitude because the whole system was set up to keep the poor people in their place. The whole system was set up to sort of keep social order. And the wealthy people, they certainly didn't feel like they were indebted to anyone. They were entitled. And the poor people, they certainly felt like they were indebted to the wealthy people, but it was tough to say thank you to them. And that's just the world that Philip lives in. So Philip uh, says, you know, you can't, we can't buy food for thousands of people. We can't even buy food for ourselves some of the times. Jesus, you have asked a question that I can't answer. In fact, you've asked a question that nobody can answer. This is an impossible situation that we find ourselves in. But Andrew, another one of Jesus' disciples, he's there. He sees this unfolding, and he has a little bit different take on the situation. He sees things differently. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Notice the subtle difference here in Philip's response and Andrew's response. All Philip sees is want. What Andrew sees is potential wonder. He's not quite there yet, but he sees potential wonder in this situation. You know, sometimes I think we kind of default to our, to our want side instead of embracing the, the wonder of the moment. Philip says, uh, we have nothing. Andrew says, well, we have something. And Philip says, it's useless. And Andrew says, maybe Jesus can use it. You know, I see people on social media, my friends on social media, and they'll post pictures of beautiful things, you know, sunsets or rainbows, you know, a full moon. And to be quite honest, most of the pictures that my friends post about showing beautiful things, most of my friends are old, they're not that great a picture, okay? They're just not. I mean, I could have found a stock photo that was much better than what they posted. You know, that, po that picture you posted, yeah, it's in a moving car through a dirty windshield, and maybe I see a rainbow there, but I'm not sure. That full moon that you said was so beautiful tonight, it looks like a tiny spot of light on a dark canvas. But I got to tell you, those of you who are my friends, I love seeing those posts. I do. First, it's not a picture of the person's cat or the meal that they just ate, or it's not a political post. But what it is, is someone who stopped for a moment and in the moment said, look at how beautiful this is. Look at this beautiful thing that I'm getting to witness. And they felt so strongly about it that they wanted to share it with their friends. And I love that. I really do. You know, so many times I, I fail to recognize it, and I felt to appreciate just the wonder that God has placed around us. You know, why is a rainbow so colorful? 
Refracted light, I get it, okay. You know, Roy G. Biv, I understand. But why was that light refracted in a way that has those bright colors? Could have been refracted in a way that showed, you know, pale grays. But God made it beautiful. God made the sunset beautiful so I could stand outside my house and go, wow, that is beautiful. Those big, beautiful things, we need to recognize them as blessings from God, but also, and maybe even sometimes more so, the small things, those seemingly mundane things that we just take for granted. You notice in this miracle that we know so well, do you notice how John goes to such great lengths to give us some really specific details in this thing? He lets us know that the bread that this little boy had was barley bread. Now, that doesn't mean very much to us, but in the first century, that was poor man's bread. That was what the poorest people ate. And there was actually a, a stigma involved with having barley bread because barley flour was used to feed animals. So barley was for animals and poor people. It was a poor man's bread. No one would brag about, hey, look at this great barley loaf that I have. You know, that, that wasn't a good thing. And then John tells us that the two fish were small fish. I want you to think about the, the picture of that big bass that your friend posted last summer or you know that big grouper that they're holding you know, with a big smile on their face. Think of that fish. These weren't those, that fish. Not at all. In fact, think just the opposite of that. Think slimy six-inch sardines from a can. You know, that, that's more what this was. This was not a rich man's uh, meal at all. I suppose the two fish were probably so the kid could choke down the barley loaves. I don't know. But uh, this is not a feast by any means. John wants us to know this meal, this little boy's lunch, it is terribly mundane. It is incredibly ordinary. And yet Andrew noticed it. And Andrew stopped and wondered about it. Now, as we try to kind of discipline ourselves to be more thankful, to live out God's best life for us, we absolutely need to pay attention to those great exclamations that God makes. We need to be awed by the sun going down over the gulf and the sky lighting up orange and, you know, the sprinkling and the tinkling and the sparkling on the water. Yeah. But we also ought to be paying attention and noticing the the six-inch sardines, too. Because sometimes God will take a six-inch sardine and he'll do pretty amazing things with it. The Christian writer G.K. Chesterton made this accurate observation, and I thought it was so good I put it on a slide because I wanted you to see it. I didn't want, you, I didn't want to just say it and you, know, you kind of miss it. He said this, The world will never starve for want of wonders, only for want of wonder. I thought that was such a great quote. And what he's saying is that um, the reality is not the problem. There's, there's plenty out there to be in awe of. There's plenty out there to, to be in wonder of. The problem is us. We don't see it. And we don't recognize it. And we don't appreciate it. We're the problem. And the reason why this is so important is because when our uh, sense of wonder starts to diminish, so does our thankfulness. It just shrinks. It shrivels. 
We quit saying thanks. And our world sort of gets reduced down to Philip's world. What can we do on our own? How can I make this happen? So, as you go through this next week, pay attention to your default mode. What are you defaulting to during the week? At any given moment, are you more inclined to want or are you more inclined to wonder? Do you find yourself being frustrated by what you're missing or are you paying attention to what is? You kind of have a Philip focus or an Andrew focus? But of course, the story that we're talking about doesn't end with just the wonder. The wonder is really sort of a gateway to gratitude. Uh, Let's keep going with the miracle here. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. 5,000 men, again, the women don't seem to matter. Uh, Not sure how many women and children there were, but there's a lot of people here. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus takes these five ordinary little loaves of bread. He takes these two small, pathetic, measly fish. He looks to the Father and he says, Thanks. Thank you, God. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, there's something a little bit odd about the timeline of this miracle. Notice Jesus thanks God when he has just this five little loaves and two little fish. That's what he thanks God for. He thanks God before the miracle happens. He thanks God when this insufficient meal is still woefully insufficient. When it looks like there is no way that everybody's going to be pleased, everybody's going to be satisfied, Jesus says, thanks. Were it me, I would have probably waited till after the miracle to thank God. I would have said, wow, God, thank you for this amazing thing that you just did. I would have waited till everyone was fed, till everyone was satisfied, till everyone was impressed, because I wouldn't want to look foolish, and I wouldn't want to be embarrassed. So I think I would have waited till after the miracle to thank God. And I say that because, because I wait till after the miracle to thank God. And I bet you do too. We thank God after the cancer is cured. And we thank God after our children are healed. And we thank God after he gives us that great opening to that great job. And we thank God after my broken heart is mended. And I thank God you know, after the storm passes. This is just another very unconventional example of Jesus saying, first the Father thanks. And then he breaks the bread. And then he begins to pass it around. And of course the crowd is kind of sitting down. They're watching. It's a big crowd. And they're watching what's going on. 
And they've got to be interested on several different levels. Now, they're craning their necks first because they want to see what's happening. But then they're, they're probably imagining, I wonder if there's going to be enough for me. Because there's a lot of people here, and that didn't look like a very big uh, pile of food to start with. And I should have sat closer to the front if I knew food was going to be distributed. Because it's been a long day, and I'm really hungry. And I'm sure they're wondering what's going on. But I also have to think that some in that crowd would have thought back to something that John the Baptist said not very long ago. John said this in John chapter 1, verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And I like how Eugene Peterson uh, translates that verse in the message. We live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. All gifts lead back to the giver. And God is a giver like none other. Because the gifts that God gives, they don't run out. That well doesn't run dry. Those blessings have no end. And the reason that, uh, that Jesus thanks God for the food before he distributes the food is because Jesus understands that whatever the circumstance might be, the, the goodness and the generosity of God is never going to be outdone by the needs of a person. God is always bigger than that. And he's always better than that. So Jesus, you know, he takes these five barley loaves and two small fish, and he tells God, thanks. And he starts handing out food, and 5,000 plus people are fed, and there's 12 baskets left over. So much more than they began with. Listen, this idea of gratitude, this idea of giving thanks in all circumstances, it's not meant to be some feel-good psychology and we're not trying to just discipline ourselves to be glass-half-full kind of people. It is much, much deeper than that. It's allowing our wonder and our trust and our faith to move us into someplace different. To give us a different reality of what really is happening around us. A better understanding of what the kingdom really is supposed to look like. And life in the kingdom is really supposed to look like. A kingdom of plenty, a kingdom of abundance, a kingdom where, where the gifts never run out. Now, on the hillside that day, Jesus used the five loaves and, and the two fish to make this profound statement about the kingdom, what the kingdom looks like. And then he also made a profound statement about the king, who the king is and what the king looks like. Grace upon grace. Gift after gift after gift. The more we live with this word thanks, the better we'll understand the kingdom and the better we'll understand the king. The more grateful we are, that's God's will. That's God's best life for us. And I know that for some of you, some of us, that word thanks, it might be right near the surface today. You, know, you might look around and say, man, it's just so easy to thank God for everything that's going on in my life. And it just, it just kind of you know, comes out, and it's easy. Others might be in a place where it's just difficult to feel grateful right now. That word thanks, it might be buried pretty deep 
in your circumstance today. But Paul's encouragement stays the same. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks while it's still just a crummy little meal that's not sufficient for anyone. Give thanks then, and then see what God does with it. Give thanks on the front end of the problem. Give thanks on the front end of the crisis. Not for the crisis, but for the giver who you know is going to be faithful. And you know wants the best life for you. Grace upon grace. Gift after gift after gift. The more he gives, the more there seems to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are indeed the giver of every good gift. And we thank you that despite our circumstances, your gospel story is working itself out in our lives. That your promises are something that we can believe in and what we can hold on to. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to a renewed sense of wonder this week. That you turn our attention to all the ways you've blessed us. May we find joy in unsuspecting places this week. And may that joy and that wonder lead us back to you, back to the giver, back to a place of thanks. We pray it in the name of your Son. Amen.